Welcome to BPRO Oberterdicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast, where you will find the latest legal and tax updates, hosted by me, Rachel Sherlock, and me, Gronya McMahon. Each month, we aim to bring you a digest of the latest legal and tax developments and feature interesting topics and people related to law and, of course, books. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, from Spotify to a link on bloomsburyprofessional.com. But as always, we start with some bite-sized nuggets of legal developments. The government has taken the first steps towards reforming PIAB. The Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, as part of the government's action plan for insurance reform, is inviting submissions to a public consultation. It said it wants to encourage more claimants and respondents to avail of the PIAB model and should lead to cost savings in the claims environment. It should ultimately lead to reductions in insurance premiums. This comes in the wake of the publication of a Judicial Council Committee draft guidelines aimed at reducing general damages awards for some personal injuries. The deadline for submissions is April 17th. In company law news, the Companies Act 2014, Section 12A1, COVID-19 Order 2020, extends the period for which the company's miscellaneous provisions COVID-19 Act 2020 shall apply. It amends the 2014 Act, in response to both the risk to human life and public health posed by COVID-19 and the economic difficulties caused by it and had been intended to have effect only for an interim period from the 21st of August 2020 till the 31st of December 2020, that has now been extended to include the period beginning on the 1st of January 2021 and ending on the 9th of June this year. It provides that a company need not hold a general meeting at a physical venue, but can do so electronically, subject to a number of provisions. It also allows that a company may require that such resolutions at a meeting be taken on a poll. The March update of BPRO's company law by Dovi O'Leary and Thomas B. Courtney looks at this and the latest updates in company law, including the recent New Look versus Company Act 2014, where the court considered an application under Section 509 of the Companies Act 2014 for the appointment of an examiner to New Look Clothing Company. In civil litigation news, the recent case of Charlton v. Coates deals with issues such as receiver injunction, Section 3 of the Land and Conveyancing Law Reform Act 2013, the definition of possession and the definition of principal private residence. The March edition of Irish Civil Litigation Update by Hugh Good BL and Roland Rowan BL features this case, which considers an appeal against a judgment of the High Court granting interlocutory injunctions sought by receivers appointed to the property, directing the defendant to vacate the property and remove any possessions therein. The central issue was whether the Circuit Court has exclusive jurisdiction to grant the relief sought having regard to the provisions of Section 3 of the Land and Conveyancing Law Reform Act 2013, and therefore whether the High Court erred in granting the relief sought by the receivers. You can check it out on the BPRO service. Finally, in employment law, more and more issues are coming to the fore with employers and employees and remote working. The March employment law update sees Tara Murphy BL analyse a case where the complainant successfully claimed constructive dismissal before the Workplace Relations Commission because her employer, the respondent, had refused her request to work from home on rotation during the pandemic. 
The adjudication officer referred to various provisions of the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act 2005. He noted that the health and safety duties were an implied term in every contract of employment. The employer's general duty to ensure so far as is reasonably practicable the safety, health and welfare at work of his or her employees, Section 8.1, should spell a warning to employers right across the country to ensure safety at work during the pandemic. For more on all of the above and the latest tax updates, including developments on cross-border VAT rules, CAT filing obligations and TWSS compliance checks, log on to bloomsburyprofessionalonline.com. But now for our featured interview, it's over to Rachel. When COVID-19 hit in 2020, suddenly we were stuck at home. Being with your partner 24-7 when usually you're out and about was something to get used to. Relationship experts were reporting that the lockdown would either make or break relationships and marriages. A year on, we are talking to one family law expert on how the pandemic has impacted on these relationships, family law proceedings, and in the midst of all of this, plans for a huge overhaul of the family law system in Ireland. Keith Walsh is a Dublin-based solicitor and mediator who's practised in the area of family law since 2001. He's won several awards, including Lawyer of the Year 2017 and 2018 and Dublin Lawyer Family Award 2019. He's also chaired the Law Society's Child and Family Law Committee. He's author of Divorce and Judicial Separation Proceedings in the Circuit Court, a guide to Order 59, published by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland, a practical handbook for practitioners. We sat down to chat to Keith about a reform of the family law structure in Ireland and the impact of COVID-19 on practitioners. Keith, so nice to meet you. What's been the impact on family law during COVID-19 with courts closed? I imagine circumstances have changed for many people and it's presented a myriad of challenges. Yeah, um, as it has for in every sector, but I think family law in, in particular, because of uh, what Rachel had said in her introduction there, you have people confined together. Um, you also have people separated. Uh, it was quite difficult um, for uh, parents, fathers in particular, to access uh, children because of the um, the restrictions. Um, but access was one of the exclusions. So you were allowed to travel uh, outside your 5K or, or other um, limits uh, to, to have access. So I suppose the restrictions on one level um, have had a huge impact on family life and uh, then the confinement on the other the lack of any courts working for a huge amount of uh, time during the pandemic has meant that cases have, have backed up in family law. And unlike, we'll say, contractual disputes or business disputes or even probate disputes, family law disputes need to be resolved fairly quickly. And I think a famous English divorce lawyer said that divorce is either slow torture or quick torture. So quick torture is much better than slow torture. But people are being tortured slowly through the family law system at the minute. Um, so that's been one of the, the huge problems is where you have intransigence on either side or reluctance to disclose documentation or reluctance to engage in the process, which happens quite a bit for a variety of reasons, not all of them necessarily negative ones, but where you have people who won't engage and move things forward. The courts really are powerless, except maybe for domestic violence, some access disputes, um, but your, your more straightforward uh, cases of separation and divorce are really being held up. So if you can't agree it, you're stuck. There's also going to be a huge long tail 
to this COVID for everyone in every sector, but particularly in, in, in family law, because the cases that haven't been dealt with since last March, and there's a huge number of them, are going to now hopefully get priority. But all the other cases that would normally have come through in the last year are also going to, to um, back up. So we're looking at huge problems currently in terms of delays and a lack of access to justice in family law. And then we're looking at delays into the future. So I know the Law Society and the DSBA, the Dublin Solicitors Bar Association, the Bar Council, family lawyers have called on the government to increase the number of family law judges who are going to sit to clear the backlog. And I know that the court service has been working very hard to try and target and clear some elements of the backlog. But there is going to be a very serious backlog in family law, but in all other civil courts. Keith, I suppose when COVID hit, we all had to rethink how we did things. And the court service, in fairness, a lot of cases moved online. Could you tell us a little bit about that, your experience about that? Has that been a success? Could you see this going forward? Yeah, I mean, the court service moved very quickly initially to trial a number of platforms for online. Uh, It worked particularly successful in cases where there is no witness evidence. So the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court, primarily are based on legal submissions and there's no uh, affidavits. Also, the Court of Appeal. So those courts work very well remotely because you can give your presentation and you can kind of see the judges and their reaction and the other advocates. What is less successful is where there's a a cross-examination requirement, but there's a huge number of cases that can be dealt with without cross-examination. And really, in in a family law case, it really is only contentious motions. And again, the circuit court rules provide that that contentious motions are dealt with an affidavit. So where they can be dealt with an affidavit, they can be done remotely. Um, Case progression can all be done remotely. All the functions of the county registrar almost uh, exclusively can be done remotely. So there's a huge number of cases that really it it works very well for. So the, the courts haven't rolled out um, remote hearings yet for the county registrar's functions. I, I know the Law Society and the DSBA have been lobbying for that. And I think that may come. And if it could be done remotely, I think it it would, would be a huge step forward. But what they have done successfully is consent divorces or consent applications are dealt with in two ways. Divorces the constitutional requirement is that the judge has to be satisfied uh, that this proper provision has been made for both spouses. So that has to be done with the judge. It's a huge incentive for people to settle cases uh, outside court if they can. And if you settle a case at the minute, you will get in and you will get a remote judge uh, who will hear the case remotely and who will finalise all the orders and will make sure that it's correct. And if it's not correct, it will be sent back. But it can be dealt with as if it was in person. So that's a huge plus and a huge incentive. Uh, other cases that can be dealt with remotely and dealt with in the office or by a judge in chambers, so people don't need to appear remotely even, are pension adjustment orders, orders appointing Section 47 assessors, agreed orders. So that's a huge step forward. And again, hopefully these some of these progress items will be maintained in the future so that we can we can run a more streamlined and more effective and more cost effective eventually for the, the clients and for the court service system. So I think there's a lot of things that are happening now that are much more efficient that would never have happened if it wasn't for COVID. So hopefully, I think the court service want to do this and practitioners want to do it and judges want to do it and clients definitely want to do it, that we maintain the efficiencies and the technology that we that works. How are clients dealing with delays? And, and, and I suppose practitioners too, because I'm sure when you take in a case, you have an idea of how long it may take in terms of fee targets, et cetera, for practitioners. So how are our practitioners managing through all of this and, and, and fee income? 
in terms of separation and divorce and child law and access and domestic violence disputes, fortunately or unfortunately, they've all increased in volume since the beginning of, of the pandemic. So there's an increased amount of work uh, coming into practitioners. And again, that doesn't come into barristers. So I think you need to divide between the two sides of the profession. So solicitors are a lot busier because the work that the front loaded work, if you like, the initial meeting clients, uh, getting the vouching documentation and all of that, th there's more of that. What there is, is a lot less of the completion element, which is the, the negotiations, the settlement, and obviously the court appearances. So uh, solicitors are probably more busy and barristers are, are less busy. And from a client point of view, it's very unsatisfactory because a case that you thought could be moved forward is now in limbo unless you could agree it. But I suppose uh, it, it all depends. We did have a break in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, it was a kind of window from October to December, which allowed everybody to feel some degree of normality. So I think having that to look forward to made a huge difference from practitioners' mental health point of view. Um, but coming back in January has been a bit of a drop for everyone. The running commentary when COVID broke out in Wuhan was that divorce numbers doubled because you're you're at home with your spouse or your partner and suddenly 24-7 where you, you did have a life and now we just can't go anywhere. Is it true as a practitioner, have you seen a huge rise in the number of family law inquiries in terms of separations and divorces since COVID hit? Have people been reassessing their life? I, I, oh, definitely. I, I mean, there's definitely been a huge increase in uh, in inquiries. Th there had been in the year or two before this, uh, there had also been a bit of an increase in family law numbers. So it continued and accelerated to a great degree. And I think the numbers, when, when I looked at them and broke them down and, and spoke to colleagues about them, we, we came to the conclusion there was a number of reasons. It's not necessarily that more marriages broke down as a result of COVID. What it did, though, was it put an additional pressure. So marriages that may have broken down next year or the following year, because of the extreme pressure from COVID over a number of months, meant that it, it was like a catalyst or it accelerated the trend for a marriage breakdown. So I think what we're seeing is marriages that may have broken down anyway have broken down faster. So that we'll say all of the, the marital breakdowns that may have happened in 2020, 21, 22, potentially 23, are now happening at the minute or the cracks are, are beginning to appear. So what we're seeing is an awful lot of cases that would have maybe taken a bit longer are coming to us now so that people during the, the post-2008 crash, you, you had people who, who wanted to separate but couldn't because the house was in negative equity and, and they stayed together. So, you know, for the first time in a long time after 2008, I had people who'd stay together in the house for three, four, five years because they simply knew financially they couldn't do anything else. So we're kind of having the opposite of that now, that people are staying together for, for a bit less. But also you have maybe marriages where, where children have grown up and left a number of years ago and people were kind of happy to keep going. And this has just made them realise, look, life is relatively short and we, we can't put up with this. You know, so all of those kind of existential or, or more bigger issues have come into play as well. But I, I, I don't necessarily think that COVID on its own has caused this. I think what it has done is it's it's put stress or pressure on situations that were already had difficulties and people have realised that they, they can't or they won't put up with this. And I think domestic violence is an entirely different situation. And, and the numbers for separation and divorce have increased. The numbers for domestic violence have really increased much more. And I, I think that's for a number of reasons. Uh, one is, again, the confinement and the stress on both both parties, both the, the aggressor and the victim. And 
And also, I think there's been great publicity around domestic violence and around the Domestic Violence Act 2018, which came in at the beginning of 2019, that people are talking about coercive control. They're talking a lot more about the unacceptability of, of domestic violence, of the Me Too movement. So I think it isn't just COVID again. I think it just has come in at, at a particular time. I guess what you're saying there, Keith, is that this is a problem that has always existed, but in some ways is more apparent now in our, our current COVID situation. Yeah, I suppose it's it's more apparent because the only court that really deals with domestic violence is the district court. And the district court has stayed open almost exclusively for domestic violence. And we can see how busy it is. So it, the focus is almost entirely on domestic violence in that court. And we, we can see that when you strip everything away, that this is just a completely unacceptable problem. And it, it's been dealt with by, by the courts. Also, it seems that the Gordi have also become more aware of this and are trained and there seems to be a greater understanding and they've set up specialist units so that when a domestic violence order is broken the remedy is it's a criminal offense to break a, a protection order or a safety order or a barring order when that's broken people are being brought to court much much quicker and more effectively and there's a court in the the criminal uh, the courts of criminal justice which is uh, exclusively for uh, breaches of these orders. So th the environment in terms of reporting domestic violence, reporting breaches and continued domestic violence has improved greatly for victims of domestic violence. And also, I think the public have got behind this and, and have said this isn't acceptable. Keith, let's talk about the Justice Plan 2021, which the Justice Minister Helen McEntee launched a few weeks ago. And of course, in it, there's great plans for the legal service. But in terms of family law, plans for a new family court, encouraging parties towards mediation. What do you make of the plans as a practitioner? And a follow on from that, um, do you feel like there's more of a role for mediation going forward in, in line with this plan? Well, de definitely. And I mean, one of the elements of the plan, which is usually to be welcomed, is the setting up of a mediation council. The Mediation Act, which came into force, which is the 2017 Act, provided generally for the setting up of a mediation council. But a mediation council would kind of regulate mediators and would really bring a huge degree of legitimacy to mediators. Currently, there is no regulation of mediators and there's no framework uh, within which they exist. There's a whole plethora of organizations that that supposedly represent uh, mediators but there's no there's no council or there's no one body so i think that that alone will will ensure a huge increase in in cases that are going to be dealt with by mediation and that's in the justice 2021 uh, plan the reality is you can't do everything and i think unfortunately it's slightly over ambitious i would have liked to have seen some just a number of key deliverables rather than a whole shopping list of things that they want to do. So, uh, for example, family lawyers in Dublin have been waiting since 2013 for the family justice complex at Hammond Lane to be built. No sod has been turned. It's still in the development phase. There still has to be consultation. And I suppose the other thing in the justice plan is it packaged up things that were on the way and indicated they're going to move them on. So, I mean, there is there is a huge need to move on the family courts bill, which was published in September 2020. 
Again, that bill has a genesis back in 2013 when Alan Chatter was Minister for Justice and he brought forward proposals and I was at a seminar and a, a conference in the Law Society uh, in 2013 when, when Alan Chatter spoke about the, the reform of the family law system and the family law courts. Uh, the Law Reform Commission published a paper, a consultation paper in 1994 on it. The Law Reform Commission uh, published a, a paper in 1996. The Law Society has written a variety of papers in the last 24 five years about reform of the family courts. So this is a long time coming and the bill has been in the department for a very long time. So I would like to see the bill move and be debated and uh, with the DSBA and with the Law Society have contributed to the consultation process, which is ongoing about the bill. So we, we do need a change to family courts, but I, I'm not sure if all the changes are good. So some of the changes are that the, the government proposes that they abolish the high court jurisdiction for judicial separation and divorce cases. Currently, the jurisdiction uh, for the high court is if there's property uh, valued at three million euros or greater, you, you would normally, the circuit court doesn't have jurisdiction, so you'd have to bring your judicial separation or divorce case in the high court. Typically, I think there's probably between 50 and 100 cases taken in the high court for judicial separation and divorce on an annual basis. That high court sits in Dublin typically, and there's a full-time family law judge and a second family law judge. The circuit court would deal with, uh, I, I think, roughly between three and 5,000 cases would start in the circuit court for judicial separation and divorce, and this is all of Ireland. So you can see that it's almost 10 times as many cases get dealt with in the circuit court. Now, obviously, in addition, in the high court, you would have uh, appeals of circuit court cases, which I, I haven't included in those numbers. But typically, very few cases get dealt with in the high court. But the cases that get dealt with in the high court turn into judgments, usually. And as you know, our system, the common law system is based on precedent and based on, on judgments and following the law. And the guidelines that come from the high court, I think practitioners say, are hugely helpful. And if we got rid of the judicial separation and divorce uh, jurisdiction in the High Court, we'd lose a, a very important guidance tool. And that's one of the reasons why we don't think it should be abolished. Another reason is that the way a case is treated in the High Court is qualitatively uh, different to the way it's treated in the Circuit Court. It gets more time. Uh, they're generally uh, High Court cases take a number of days and they deal exhaustively with uh, points, whereas the Circuit Court is is a, a, a much less detailed court because the time isn't simply available. And so a typical high court case would run two or three or four or five days and it would analyze all the issues in extensive detail. Your typical circuit court case would be between half a day and two days, maybe three or four days unusually. But generally the, the circuit court would deal with that type of case. So we say, look, from a resource point of view, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference whether you have a high court or not. But from a practice point of view, for the clients, they get a better quality of service and a better investigation of their case, particularly the big money cases or the cases with particular issues. And we want law to be made in this area to give us guidelines. We, we need to know as family lawyers it's in camera, so you don't hear the judgments normally, only when they're published. They're only published in the High Court. So we really need that High Court jurisdiction. So I think that that's something we're not really in favour of. We are in favour of the overall theme of the, the Family Courts Bill, which is specialisation, specialist judges, uh, judges who, who receive training, judges who spend two years having a principal judge in each jurisdiction in the in the High Court, the circuit and the district who looks after family law. 
having sets of guiding principles which which will be followed. They're going to set up new circuit and high court and, and district court rules for family law. So all of this is hugely welcome. And none of it is, is rocket science. Some of it was, was proposed in, in a variety of other papers. Could we go back briefly to the family court bill in the justice plan, Keith? And they talk about access to specialist supports. And I think as a practitioner, that would be extremely helpful in, in terms of you mentioned those uh, child psychologist reports, Section 32 reports, and they can be quite expensive for parties, particularly where they may feel that there's an issue going on with one parent and a child, and they then want to get the report carried out. And I've seen cases where the father, for example, has had to pay all of the costs of, of that report or perhaps a significant portion of it. And often the query is, this is quite unjust. But in terms of the plan and the bill streamlining family law processes, if you were to have your wish list. I suppose my own view in family law, one of the issues is that we don't have cost sanctions, unlike civil litigation, where if you don't if you don't comply with the rules of the court, file a defence within the time, an order for costs will be made against you. Costs will follow the event. That doesn't happen in family law. I'm not in favour of cost sanctions because I think genuinely they don't work. And quite often the weaker party might may be the one who, who can't move it along for whatever reason. But I am in favour of more judicial uh, intervention at an earlier stage to, to monitor and oversee the process. And also to say to people, look, you simply can't continue to mess like this. There will be a consequence. And I, I think certainly one of the, the things that people say to me day in, day out is why are they just allowed to mess around? Aren't there any consequences for somebody delaying this? So I think the way to do it is maybe have some potential cost sanctions at, at the end of the case, but also have one judge who's dedicated to the management of a case and that that would be the same in the district circuit or family. One of the other problems is where you have a variety of judges hearing the same parts of a case, if, particularly if you have an extremely difficult case. So if you have a, a case where there's huge issues with access, and access orders are being broken or the, the excuses are being made. And it's very frustrating if you have to go before a different judge and explain things all over again. Even though it's on the file, it's quite different. And then you go to a different judge. So I think consistency of judges and uh, season by judges of cases and holding on to them. So the first thing I think is huge activity pre-issue of proceedings to see can you settle it. But then if you can't settle it, you get fast-tracked to judicial management where the judge takes a grip of the case and says, OK, you've got three weeks to file your affidavit of means. We'll put it in for mention in three weeks time. Once I see your affidavit of means, I want the vouching. And, and there's a timetable and it's the same judge. Now, obviously, it probably couldn't be the judge who does all the kind of timetabling and judicial management who would hear the case. So you'd have a different judge who would hear the case, but there would be some form of report or report card that would be passed from, from judge number one. And there would be consequences for delays without excuse. I would like to see a, a system along those lines. And some of my colleagues, I suppose, is on the Family Law Committee are in favour of cost sanctions. They say that's the only way we're going to, to deal with people who won't respond to letters, who won't file their affidavits, who won't give the vouching, who won't give the discovery. So maybe we do need to look at cost sanctions. I'm, I'm t slightly against it, but I, I can see the arguments in favour of it as well. Keith, can I talk to you about, in the Justice Plan, the Justice Minister is, is planning to overhaul the personal injuries industry. And, you know, we've seen an awful lot of media coverage about that in recent times. And I know I talked to you previously about this in terms of if there is a collapse, say, or a partial collapse in the personal injuries industry, and if we see an increase in the number of family law proceedings post-COVID, 
Do you see general practitioners moving into family law? I don't necessarily see a rush to family law, partly because of the historical anti-family law perceptions, partly because family law clients are very demanding and perceived as very demanding, and partly because it's an area of law where the client pays and the client isn't a corporation and the client isn't necessarily good for it and that you can do an awful lot of work and get very caught in family law cases if you're not careful where there's there's just no money there. And I, I think the, the collapse in the personal injuries fee income, which is going to happen as a result of this, undoubtedly, I mean, I read the Kelly report and essentially a minority report from, from Peter Kelly and the, the secretaries of the Department of uh, Justice and I think on Taoiseach and Finance essentially said there have to be scale fees now. And that combined with the, the recently issued judicial guidance means that cases that formerly might have been high court at one stage and certainly would have been decent circuit court cases are now going to end up in the district court where there is no money really comparable to what was an offer. So I, I think there is going to be a huge problem. I think that problem is partly going to come into family law and people are going to try and start doing it. But I don't necessarily see the people who are relocating from that background as wanting to do it as much. But I think it's a huge problem for the legal profession. I think it's a huge problem for both the solicitors and the bar. Personal injury supported a huge number of general practices that may not have been as viable without it. And that when you remove the personal injury element of the fee income, practices become potentially non-viable. Um, the personal injuries topic is something that definitely to be delved into. Again, Keith, so from a specialist family law solicitor, what tips would you have for young practitioners starting out, barrister or solicitor, you mentioned there that, you know, one of the key things is judging the case initially and being able to judge how you're going to get paid. But if you if you had some tips on, on just to young people starting out, what would you say? I'd say, first of all, don't just do family law. Do a little bit of everything. And if you're going to come back to family law, it'll be there for you. But do a variety of things for two, three, four, even five years uh, once you qualify. Mm-hmm. Don't stop doing family law, but do it with everything else. And And Really, family law is a bit of probate. It's a little bit of conveyancing. It's a little bit of discovery. It's a bit of civil stuff. If you can get any criminal experience, I think that will be hugely helpful no matter what you do, because I think there's a different rigor and discipline to criminal. And certainly my own, one of my own regrets is I didn't do much criminal at all as as I uh, qualified. And if, if I was certainly doing it again, I, I would do that. Second thing is, I suppose, seek out somebody who specializes in it if you really want to do it and find out how they do it. And Again, I would have a look at how uh, different people do it and also ask for help and ask, can you see how people do things? Finally, Keith, for me today, before we go to Rachel for our quick fire round, how do you de-stress from the job? I, I don't know. I suppose you just talk to colleagues a good bit. In family law, you're dealing with the same people all the time. So it's it's actually quite nice. And once you're doing it for a while, I mean, somebody was given out to me one day, another solicitor, and then they just stopped and said, there's no point giving out to you, Keith, you stop listening to me. You know, it's like water off the top of the I think I think that's the key is it's not that you stop listening to people, but that you, you know how somebody's going to operate. And we're kind of all used to each other in Dublin in the family law. You know, there's probably 10 or 15 of us who do an awful lot of this. So you're dealing with a lot of the same people. So it's quite nice. And, you know, you when you're doing it after a while, you don't tend to get as stressed. You're, you're not waking up in the middle of the night thinking I should have done that or I should have done that. So, it, you know, when you're doing something all the time and again, when you specialize, it makes it less stressful. 
Thanks so much, Keith. That's fantastic. And like Ronya said, we just have one last section where we do a non-legal roundup of some lighter questions in a quick fire round. So what is your top tip for surviving lockdown? Drink, I think, unfortunately. <laughs> what book are you reading? I read a book called Repentance by a lady called Eloisa Diaz, which I'm a huge crime novel fan, probably for escapism. And I love the Benjamin Black ones and P.D. James and uh, a whole variety of books, particularly there's an Italian one, Inspector's End, written by an English guy. So I, I, all of those I, I love. And this is one about uh, a cop in Buenos Aires whose brother was taken during the kind of military dictatorship and it's just a story about him remembering uh, the, the week that his brother was taken and how he his relationship with his wife is and he's solving a crime at the same time. So it's fantastic escapism and it's great because you read it and you think, oh, I'd, I'd love to go, particularly at the minute, you're thinking I'd love to go to, to Buenos Aires <laughs> or to Argentina or just somewhere. And again, the, the, the crime novels are fantastic because there's always a bit of a story and it's um it's kind of escapism as well. So I'm really enjoying that at the minute. Well, speaking of the sun, what are your three must-have essentials if you're on a desert island? Um, I suppose I would have to take a book and I'm a huge fan of, of Rumpole. So I take one of the Rumpole omnibuses with me in terms of a book. I, I love listening to the radio. And I, I really would love to take the the BBC Sounds app because you can listen back and I, I think it's fantastic. So I definitely take that with me uh, as long as I could have the app. And I, I'd obviously, I was thinking I'd, I, I would miss my family, uh, even though we drive each other mad. So I'd have a picture of them all there as well. Uh, so they're, they're the three things. Fantastic. And next, what was the last thing that made you laugh like a proper belly laugh? Um, we have a dog called Snow, Snowy and uh, Snowy's in a playful mood at the minute. So um, we he was outside with another dog and they were just messing around. So we were all out watching him and he just probably got a little bit too excited with himself and, and a bit over amorous with the other dog. So uh, that wasn't Sunday. So that was probably the last time I had a laugh. <laughs> and then finally, if you could do any other job, what would it be? In an ideal world, I probably would like to be a journalist and maybe um, get involved in that or maybe have done journalism, maybe do PR and copywriting, something like that. I think, again, I'm a huge fan of Mad Men, so I was very interested to see how, how that portrayed maybe not an entirely realistic uh, life. But certainly from, uh, I think, anyone interested in, in writing or words or books, journalism would, would lead you that way. And then also just, I think PR would be interesting after that, having met and seen how PR works. I think the communications element of it might be interesting. So, yeah. Keith, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I know... Our listeners will be so delighted to get an insight into all of those areas. And of course, your practical advice and your book tips. Maybe you should set up a book podcast. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, look, thanks, Gronia. And thanks, Rachel. It's, it's a real pleasure to, to, to do this. And thanks for, for driving it on. And hopefully if people find it of interest. Keith's book, Divorce and Judicial Separation Proceedings in the Circuit Court, A Guide to Order 59, published by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland, is available from bloomsburyprofessional.com. Join us for another podcast where we discuss legal and tax topics. You can find us on Facebook and on Instagram at Bloomsbury Professional IRE. And to sign up for a free trial of our BPRO Legal Update service, check out bloomsburyprofessionalonline.com. Until next time. 